people are going to be writing about us for the rest of our lives probably, and after we're dead. So I intend to either confuse the issue so much they never knew what was going on, or to try and keep shoving out bits and bits. So as whoever is bothered to be looking at it in the future, the people that really know will sort out, you know, they'll know what was going on a bit. There's a lot of books about the Beatles and a lot of theories, and I try not to read them. And whenever I do, the first thing is like, oh, that's wrong. Everywhere you go, trying to find out any little bit of dirt that they can write about you. Beatles is Beatles, that Beatles, Beatles, Beatles. It doesn't matter, you know, what, what people say. You can't live all your life by what they want. Another Kind of Mind. A different kind of Beatles podcast by Another Kind of Mind. Welcome to episode three of Pizza and Fairy Tales, our four, five, our multi-part series on Lennon-McCartney in the 70s. Episode two, we talked about Yoko reaching out to Paul, who in turn reaches out to John, and the growing warmth and ease between the old friends as they spend leisure time together in California and New York. John gives an affectionate and curiously intimate shout out to Paul from what turns out to be his final stage performance. And shortly thereafter has a meltdown over putting ink to paper and finalizing the Beatles divorce. John's cold feet delays the inevitable, but finally he signs and at last the Beatles are officially dissolved. When we left off, Paul had just invited John to be a guest at his new recording session. How does this play out as Lennon and McCartney move forward into 1975? In this episode, we'll discuss the reunion in New Orleans that almost was, John and Yoko's storied reconciliation, John's retirement from music, and John and Paul's gradual return to a state of estrangement. This is Pizza and Fairy All right, so in January of 1975, basically as soon as the Beatles' divorce papers are signed, Paul calls up and invites John to New Orleans, where he's headed to start recording his new album. They're playing it cool, like just come yeah. and hang out in New Orleans. It'll be fun. Yeah. And John is excited immediately. Like he thinks it's a great idea. And he tells May, let's do it. Let's go out to Montauk for the weekend decompress and then we'll head to new orleans we'll go down hang out with paul and linda and then when we get back to new york i'll finalize this rock and roll album we'll get that out of the way and then i'll start a new album john is so energized he immediately composes two new songs one was apparently called popcorn which i believe has been <laughs> lost to time the other is tennessee and we do have a demo of that one Thank you. 
May writes, I felt very happy. The John I loved most was the productive John, a man deeply committed to making good music. So they're in a good place right now. John gives an interview in January 1975 to Alan Friedman. Alan asks, at this particular point of your career, do you feel that you would prefer to be a songwriter in the singular? Or do you feel that you would still like to really be writing with Paul McCartney? John. Well, I go through both feelings. I know Paul goes through this because we were talking about it about a week ago. Sometimes you get to a spot in a song where in the old days you would have said, ah, I'll leave it here. I won't struggle with it. He'll fix it right? It goes both ways. And we did a lot of writing on our own anyway, but there was always the feeling that somebody was there if you needed it. That's the first indication that I've ever seen that they were explicitly talking about. Yeah, the old days of collaboration. Uh huh. Yeah, and how, gee, wouldn't it be nice if that somebody was there if you needed it? Right, remembering that fondly. Which I'm sure they both did. Of course they did. Yeah. From the beginning. But this seems to be the first time that we know that not only is John talking openly about it, but that he says he's been talking with Paul openly about it. But that's wild. Because it's always sort of presented like like that was a taboo subject they would never talk about. Like the idea of them. Right. And Don doesn't say, yes, we're planning to write together or anything. But even them having a conversation about it, I think, is something. Yeah, I I was a little surprised when I read this. John must have been in a really good place this day. (laughs) I mean, according to May, and she'd be the person who'd know, you know. Sounds like Mm -hmm. January 75 was a pretty good place for him. John had asked me, he said, what would you think, would it be a good idea if if I started to write with Paul again? And if I could tell you, I thought, I felt like I was in the exorcist when my head spun around so quickly. And I said, I I, I was so uh, taken aback and I said, it would be great. Meanwhile, Yoko keeps calling about a new form of hypnosis to cure John's smoking addiction. Um, She keeps calling and scheduling and then canceling and scheduling and canceling until finally she gives him the go ahead to come over. And May writes, just as John was about to leave, Yoko called. The stars weren't right again. And the session was canceled. Yoko called back three or four times during the evening to schedule, then rescheduled the meeting. The session was then supposed to occur Thursday at four. On Thursday, there were two reminder calls followed (laughs) by a cancellation an hour later. By then, Yoko had spent two full weeks enticing John with the premise that he would stop smoking. What on earth? Yeah, I don't, I mean, part of me is just like, it's just a power play. Or maybe Yoko really is that superstitious. It's possible, but also we just have that story of her faking a letter to say, oh, the astrologer told me you shouldn't sign the papers. Yeah. So, I mean. Yeah, but it seems weird that she would risk, like, you do that enough to John Lennon, he's probably like, well, I don't care anymore, I'm leaving, bye. 
you have to be pretty confident that it'll reel him in but it appears to play that well that's true it does it works so i think he so, i think he likes it maybe it's a whole lot of attention yeah and i think it's just like a little cat and mouse game like yeah. i think john likes it you know yeah i mean my other theory is that you know she's uh monitoring her ovulation and she wants to get him over when she's ovulating because it's very convenient that this 42 year old woman just coincidentally got pregnant no again not that there's anything wrong with that i mean no, i do definitely take your point she probably doesn't think she has a lot of wiggle room that would very neatly explain this followed yeah. by the fact that she does get pregnant yeah. by this time so <laughs> <laughs> anyways so may is like john enough go just to, to smoke enders or get a hypnotist from the newspaper or something you don't need yoko's and john's like no 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 yoko's really good at finding people he keeps telling may don't worry don't worry it's fine and may's like john she's clearly fucking with you and he's like what yeah. no yoko's no. great yeah she's yeah cool. so Finally, the stars are right. And Yoko says, okay, come over now, quickly. <laughs> and <laughs> May knows it's not going to go well for her. You know, she's, yeah. she starts crying. She asks him not to go. She just, she knows. And, and John's like, it'll be fine. It'll, you know, relax. I'll see this hypnotist. I'll stop smoking. I'll come back. We'll go see Paul and everything will be fine. So needless to say, John doesn't come back that night. May calls. Yoko won't let her speak to John. May calls again the next day. And Yoko says, you can't. He's exhausted. The cure was very difficult. And this goes on all weekend. So Monday rolls around and May and John actually both had scheduled dentist appointments at the same dentist. (laughs) So May shows up to her appointment, hoping John's also going to show up to his, which he does. And he looks dazed and confused and exhausted. May said he seemed extremely disoriented. And then she says, are you coming home? After they walk out to the street and he goes, yeah. And they just walk back to May's apartment, like three blocks away. And he gets upstairs. You know, they're sort of walking on eggshells. Like she doesn't know what to do. Right. And then... Once they're upstairs, he goes, I guess I should tell you now, Yoko's allowed me to come back. And May gets upset and, you know, starts crying and everything. And John says, it wasn't anybody's fault. It just happened. That, that's an interesting way for John to put it. I, that's not really what you say about a joyous reconciliation, John. It's, yeah, it's not. She said he's, he looked like a zombie. That's a great state of mind to like make a major life decision in. Well, and it certainly begs the question, like, what the fuck happened over there? Well, absolutely. Yeah. Which we'll talk about in a Which second. Which we will talk about, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> boo boy. And then May calls up Yoko afterwards, and she even admits this was completely childish of her. But she calls up Yoko and says, Yoko, I hope you're happy. <laughs> and Yoko tells her, happy. I don't know if I'll ever be happy, she said bitterly. I had never heard her sound so miserable. Her response stunned me and her mood was so dark. It momentarily shocked me out of my numbness. 
Yoko, isn't this what you wanted? May, this is not the time to talk. I'll call you. She hung up and never called back. Here's another quote from May in the Danny Fields, Linda McCartney biography. May says, when John came back, he was a different person about Paul. It wasn't the same. He was saying, oh, you know how when Paul and Linda used to come and visit us? Well, I couldn't stand it. May describes him being in a very altered state mentally. And then after that, he totally reverses himself. And like Yoko would not have to brainwash John. (laughs) She could say anything from like, remember that annoying thing Paul used to do that you Mm -hmm. hated to remember how he stomped on your heart and humiliated you? Like anything in that spectrum of negative talk. Yeah, or even since they're so into the stars, maybe this hypnotist might have given him some psychobabble about beware, treading old paths, they could lead you (laughs) to relapsing. And that would be fine. But then he would come back and he'd be like, you know what, I thought about it. And I, I don't need to go and rekindle with Paul. He's part of my past or something, which is not what he says. He says, no, I couldn't stand it when Paul and Linda visited. (laughs) But May's like, I was there. And that's not what I witnessed. And I think May knows John well enough to know he wasn't pretending to enjoy Paul's company or faking his excitement to go see him in New Orleans. Um, She's observing a drastic change in behavior, not just the words that come out of John's mouth is what I'm saying. Right. So to spell this out, John is rewriting his history and experience with Paul, not just changing his feelings, but rewriting or erasing his previous feelings Mm -hmm. In this mm-hmm. case, after input from Yoko, and this is, this is very important and something we've tried to stress over and over in this podcast is that it's, it's not sufficient or fair to take John's negative comments at face value. Right. It's definitely possible for people to change their feelings or for good feelings to sour over time or for feelings of great love and affection to turn bitter. Right. But all those intense feelings don't cancel each other out. You know, they don't erase your previous feelings. <laughs> Much as you might want them to or try to convince other people that they do. Yeah, there's a history there. So it tells a story. Right. A progression of events. And beyond Yoko's desire to keep Paul away from John, We're interested in why John would want to be or would allow himself to be redirected away from Paul. Yoko's motives are, I think, fairly transparent. um, And so we acknowledge them, but they're not the point. The point is, yes, why does John go along with it? Correct. And if he is directly and deliberately trying to erase his positive feelings for Paul, the only thing that we can really take away from that is that John loves Paul in a way that he doesn't want to. Mm. Yeah. John is extremely conflicted always from 1970 on. And so I think there's a tension between what John feels at least sometimes and what he wants to feel. John does not want to be filling journals with all of his thoughts about Paul. That is not enjoyable for him. 
Yeah, yeah. He doesn't wish to be obsessible. No, he can't help being so sometimes. If you're trying to downplay bad feelings, it makes more sense. It's like you don't want those bad feelings to get in the way of a good situation or, or something that you want That's to worth it. Yeah. overcome. Either because right. you want to continue to like that person or because you don't want to feel bad. Sure. Yeah. But if you're deliberately trying to smother love feelings for somebody, like I said, that tells a bigger story. There's something else going on there. Absolutely. Something big and very important that has never been discussed. And just to prepare everyone, um, it might be very upsetting to hear. It's going to get rough for the next 20 minutes or so. Yeah. But it's been swept under the rug for way too long and it's time to talk about it yeah past time for sure so disturbingly john tells may that the cure was like primal therapy he says it was horrible may says why was the cure horrible and john says i don't know it was just like primal therapy and may says what the fuck (laughs) primal (laughs) therapy And John goes, I was throwing up all the time. I kept throwing my guts out. I kept falling asleep. And when I woke up, they would do it to me again. Okay. So the question is not, why did the smoking cure involve vomiting? That makes sense if you're trying to create an aversion to cigarettes. Yeah. Like it's it's a bit extreme, but it it's logical. Yeah. The bigger and more disturbing question is why was Janoff's treatment like aversion therapy? That is the Pandora's box that is opened here that we need to talk about. And also, by the way, primal therapy has come up before because of that anecdote earlier in May's book where Yoko says, I did primal therapy with him. I know his deepest fears. Mm -hmm. That was right before um, their separation. But there's also a story in her book from November 1973, where she and John run into Arthur Janov outside the Roxy. Gross. Yeah. Psychologist to the stars. Yes. And, and May says, John and Janov chatted for a few minutes. Then John said with a smile, well, Yoko beat you, didn't she? She won out. When we went into the club, John explained that Yoko had fought Janov throughout the therapy. They each had thought they knew what was best for John. Janov was very tough, John observed, but he was no match for Yoko. She watched everything he did. She figured it all out and she learned to do it better. And then May writes, I remembered what Yoko had told me the very first day I went to work at the Dakota and the memory made me sick. All right. So that's not a healthy dynamic for a husband and wife. It's not. I was going to say it's not really a healthy relationship with your psychologist and well, your patient. Well, no. We're also I mean, and we're kind- isn't Yoko a patient of his also? <laughs> Ostensibly, yeah. Yeah, like they did primal therapy together. Like she made her mm-hmm. plastic on a band album too. But I know that Janov and Yoko had, they came to a head because Janov said that he wanted to do therapy with John alone. 
Like he didn't want Yoko Ooh. there anymore. And Yoko was like, no, oh. we're out. And she cut it. She cut it off. Yikes. Yeah. That whole thing. Like, this is just bad. This is really bad. The whole Jana of primal therapy. Yeah. It's just, it's just bad. Bad news. It's just bad <laughs> it's just news. Bad yep. news in every way. Yeah. yeah. That whole chapter of John and Yoko should not be underestimated in importance. Whatever it is they went through, it really seems like it was deeply transformative and that it shaped them as individuals, but it also shaped their relationship and laid down some really um, interesting foundations for that relationship. Interesting meaning frightening to me. (laughs) Just going to say it. Just going to say it. Yeah, sort of laid the groundwork for the rest of their like mind game fuckery. Yeah. Rather than therapy, it <laughs> seems like a crash course in like how to fuck with each other. Yes. Right? Yeah. Okay, so we're gonna have a little discussion about the primal therapy right now. Yeah. So we don't know everything that went down with Janoff. And he's been quoted as saying, We had opened John up and we didn't have time to put him back together again whatever Whatever the hell that means means. yeah exactly i haven't read janov's book but we know the basic theory accessing your most primal hurts reliving them for the purpose of then confronting them and moving past them so in a nutshell that's the theory right and we also know that janov claimed primal therapy could cure homosexuality and that he continued to list homosexuality as a disorder long after the American Psychiatric Association declassified it as a psychiatric disorder in 1973. That's from the New York Times obit on Janov. He was defending it long after the 70s, as it happens, as I discovered on the delightful research journey I took into Janov's toxic bullshit opinions. During which I found the following blog entry from 2012. So he is dragging the American Psychiatric and American Psychological Associations um, because they have, quote, decided that homosexuality is normal and they are now railing against the idea of conversion therapy where therapists try to convert homosexuals back to normal. The problem is that neither knows what normal is. Suppose we show that one year after starting therapy, homosexuals have a normal level of cortisol or that their blood pressure normalizes. Then we begin to have an idea of what normal is and if there has been a deviation. If after we do all kinds of research biochemically, we begin to see what is a deviation or not. So no, homosexuality is not a normal part of sexuality, not because I say so out of some prejudice, but because science leads me there. Okay, great. Great work, Jenna. So gay people are stressed out and traumatized. Not because of the uh, violence and homophobia that they uh, face from all corners of life, but because yeah. gayness is, is like, inherently traumatizing. Yeah. And is not normal. As he, how many times does he say the word normal? Like six times. 
Okay, so gayness is like hypertension in your opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yes, moron. Well, he he also compares it to migraines later on. So here's some more. Are you ready for more of this? Yeah. In the same blog entry from 2012, mind you. Okay. Quote, if patients could be helped back to their remote history, we would see the pain involved in homosexuality, and then we could add it to copious research extant that indicates that it may well begin with trauma in the womb and at birth. Sometimes science is fascist. It doesn't care about our feelings or where their findings lead. It cares about truth. So it should say that sometimes psychotherapy for homosexuality might be good and that it might be a deviation after all. Keep an open mind and above all, never vote on matters of science. That is truly ridiculous. I don't understand how he was not disbarred or thrown in the garbage. Whatever the equivalent of of that would be. (laughs) So as far as I went, Phoebe. So I did not dive any deeper. I don't understand. So is gayness like a, it's a, is it like migraines and hypertension or is it the result of trauma at birth? I don't know what that means. Like what you had the cord wrapped around you or something. I don't know. No, it's something about like hormone levels getting thrown off while in utero exposed to whatever adverse conditions affected their hormones and turned them gay. Okay, but he's 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 projecting a judgment onto that. He's saying it's adverse. There's nothing inherently well, adverse exactly. about it. Exactly. Right. Gayness like, doesn't it doesn't harm you in any way. <laughs> and it doesn't prevent you from being able to procreate. It's like if you even want to take it in that direction. Oh, oh. Oh wait. Oh. Oh god. <laughs> okay, so here's here's another blog entry. This is from 2008. Way uh, back in the Stone Age. <laughs> <laughs> Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, we have to make allowances. It's so almost 2018 years ago. So, <laughs> I mean, we didn't uh, even have iPhones yet. Oh, wait, or did we? <laughs> yeah. Okay. When was the first iPhone? Hang on. <laughs> Holy shit! The first iPhone was in 2007. So I stand corrected. This is a post <laughs> iPhone world that this motherfucker is saying this shit in. Okay. 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 So 2008. Quote. We don't advertise and make outrageous claims about homosexuality or anything else. No, Meaning definitely not. His definitely foundation. Not. We do not do we do not Primal do that. scream therapy. <laughs> we have cured, quote unquote, some homosexuality. We didn't start out to cure anything, but two or three of them came to me after some time in therapy and said, my orientation has changed. I said, fine, if it makes them happy, so much the better. What causes homosexuality? That is a sticky wicket. I have the feeling that with all the new research, there is a hormonal base to some of it, since traumas in the womb can and do change the later sex hormone levels. That is not all. There has to be a familial configuration that deprives the child of fulfillment of need somehow, somewhere. Oh, I, I okay, th- here it is. Here it is. Uh, yeah. I do think heterosexuality is normal, given the need for survival of the species, to say nothing of how the parts fit together to make babies. 
What? I really. <laughs> oh I my really god. don't care if homosexuals think they are normal. Oh my god! That <laughs> okay. is that is their choice. Uh, I do th- not agree or disagree. Oh my god! Okay, first of all, this guy is a fucking idiot. Homosexuality <laughs> has nothing to do with procreation. You fucking moron! Like males can rape females on the regular and still have babies it has zero to do with sexuality of any kind let alone heterosexuality are you fucking stupid you really think that like lesbians can't be impregnated and have children what is fucking wrong with you you're not even even close to science it's absurd i'm sorry i just really want to pants this asshole on my podcast i'm sorry why else have a podcast uh, listen i went through the blogs so if you if you through you did a lot of dirty work let me just read this last sentence <laughs> okay, okay. people this is not even like these are sort of the worst things but there's plenty more in these blog articles that are equally bad i mean it's not just cherry picking let me just get this over with last sentence from the blog entry He concludes, I try to follow my experience for over 50 years of therapy and of all the new research, including brain changes in homosexuals. Okay. I I don't even, I don't even begin to know what to say, but like some of the things he says is just so patently fucking stupid like traumas in the womb that can and do change the 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 sex hormone levels like so basically you're saying a human becoming a male in utero is trauma what are you even talking about i don't know Mm -mm. oh my god okay so this this is the brainiac (laughs) that, that was giving john lennon radical therapy. therapy in 1970 50 yeah. fucking years ago he's saying this really stupid unenlightened shit in 2008 this is his apologism for his for <laughs> himself god you're right in in the 2000s so 60 years before that okay i can't add 40 years before that <laughs> i can't even imagine what toxic waste he would have been pouring into people's brains oh my god we don't have any evidence that john received anti-gay treatment because we don't know anything about john's treatment other than you know little snippets of shit that he's shared right but we definitely know that he emerged from janov's care publicly renouncing the Beatles and his life's work with the Beatles to an absolutely epic degree. And that he also came out with super homophobic speech and ideology for the next year of his life, that he trashed the entire Lennon-McCartney catalog (laughs) and their (laughs) partnership, you know, lied about how close they were, lied about them never writing together. And smeared the living shit out of Paul McCartney. As Robert Christgau wrote in The Village Voice in 1971, how do you sleep is the kind of public act committed by a lover who wants to make sure he will never return in momentary weakness to the one who has rejected him so cruelly. The best proof yet of how deep 
the Beatles' unity once was. I mean, I hate to quote Kritzkow, but he absolutely nailed it there. John renounced Paul. The way you would renounce a religion. He literally compared Paul to religion on Plasticono Band when he spits the line, I've seen through religion from Jesus to Paul. Yeah. And as much as people try to say that it was the Beatles strictly for reasons of artistic growth, it wasn't about George or Ringo, both of whom he was still playing with. And it wasn't rock music, which he continued to produce. It wasn't fame or wealth, both of which he continued to pursue with a vengeance. It was Lennon McCartney or Beatles as a euphemism for me and Paul that he renounced. Like he is renouncing his close, loving relationship with Paul McCartney. And he's renouncing all the beautiful music they made together. To an epic degree, like you said. And it's important to note that his homophobic speech during this period is self-directed as well. Not just a stick he uses to beat other people with. In fact, he blames his previous bad behavior on it. Like when he says he beat up Bob Wooler and nearly killed him, he blames that on whatever part of himself was afraid he might be queer and throwing the F slur around a lot as he did it, which was not typical of him before. Talking about himself in a self-critical way. I think that's important. Yeah. He said that uh, he felt he felt guilty about introducing Brian oh, yeah. to pills because because of Brian's of eventual Brian overdose. But yeah. he, he yeah. said they go that way anyway, meaning gay people. Yes. So either he believes or has been indoctrinated into this idea that gay people are all going to end up dead by suicide anyway, because it's yeah. a road to nowhere. Whatever. It destroys lives. It's unnatural. It. Yeah. yeah it's a it's a disease yeah correct <laughs> a fatal disease god yeah so we think janos treatment was just transparently awful yeah manifestly really bad and the effects on john were demonstrably terrible yes. <laughs> it did not make him yes. a better person or a happier person but because he made his two best albums in this period we pretend it was great it's disgusting yeah yeah it really is it makes me sick and like we celebrate this period in his life as like his true artist self-blossoming because yeah. we we literally have to in order to venerate plastic auto band and imagine it, we have to keep up this fucking charade that this was like self-actualized john lennon at the best time of his life yeah he was emerging from the cocoon of the Beatles um, and finding his true self. I hate that story so much for that reason. Like we have to find a way to celebrate his art and acknowledge at the same time that that was a bad period for him. Yeah. The mythology built around that period is misguided to say the least and insidious considering the hell that it puts him through. All of his negative traits were dialed up to 11 his cruelty and bullying, his self-centeredness, self-delusion, paranoia, horrible judgment about other people <laughs> and their motives. How badly fucked up do you have to be to say, 
Alan Klein and Phil Spector really love me. Unlike those Beatles, a.k.a. Paul. Which is why I'm so hot about how do you sleep? You know, again, it's fine to acknowledge it as like, wow, this wasn't his shining moment. You know, like, sure. I'm not saying it needs to be deleted from the universe or anything. (laughs) I'm just saying like, maybe let's not hold it up as like one of his great works. And also like if the estate was like, he wrote that, but on the other hand, he also wrote, I know, I know. Like if those went hand in hand, then how do you sleep would just look like a lover's quarrel or, you know what I mean? It would balance out the narrative. Exactly. And Jealous Guy too. Either one. like On the same album. Right. There's definitely an audience, especially in this era, like especially Gen Z and moving forward, like there's definitely an audience for the sweet kind romantic john lennon as opposed to the dickhead john lennon dickhead john lennon just is not playing like it used to no the pendulum is only going to swing further away from let's all revere john at his worst (sighs) so yeah so anyway i have no idea why primal therapy would be like a cure for smoking right unless there was a version therapy going on with janov unless he was inducing nausea uh in john which to i mean that far and away is the most likely explanation to me yeah um for john vomiting and passing out during primal therapy is that john have <laughs> inflicted conversion therapy on john during this time all all the pieces fit what else is he doing aversion therapy about is john trying to cure john smoking i don't think so no i definitely don't think so in, in fact uh janoff told them that they should indulge themselves during therapy which is why they ate nothing but chocolate 24 7 and gained a bunch of weight and wore overalls for five months (laughs) right yeah i mean is he is he showing him pictures of julia and alf and mimi and then giving him an emetic (laughs) and making making him barf in a bowl i don't think so yeah that doesn't make any sense And I mean, again, just to be clear, we don't have proof that John received anti-gay aversion therapy from Janov. It's just a pretty logical leap. It is. If anyone has any alternate takes on what that might be, I would love to hear them because I would really rather not think that John was subjected to that. Not only does it explain why primal therapy was similar to aversion therapy, but it also explains a lot of John's speech and behavior coming out of primal therapy. Yes. Yep. Which is horribly sad and makes me absolutely furious on John's behalf. It's beyond horrifying. And I do, I do hate that Yoko was complicit in this well i do too but but you know what it's a licensed reputable doctor who's doing it so yeah in her defense and also if it's something that john doesn't like about himself that's bringing him pain yeah well you know what you're right i mean she definitely like played into it you know she's on the record saying a few times as we discussed you know yeah that she's got suspicions about his sexuality but those are realistic. And I really doubt that if John, when John heard Janov's pitch about conversion therapy, that his reaction right. would have been anything other than great. Awesome. Sign yes. me up. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's my point yeah. is that John in 1968, you know, when he's hooking up with Yoko, he's not like, by the way, I'm bisexual and proud. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. He's like deliberately trying to change his life. 
by yeah. getting together with her. So yeah, yeah in an extremely performative way no less mm-hmm. not that that means that the relationship is fake or anything but obviously part of something that he really latched on to about it and liked about it and pursued about it was making a public spectacle of it you know we're not trying to make light of his internal struggle about his sexuality whatever it was you know we just wish that he had found a therapist who was like, chill, relax. That's a beautiful yeah. side to yourself. Like, don't exactly. sweat it, you know, like embrace it and would don't be afraid. Yeah. But that wasn't an option, I guess, in 1970. <laughs> probably, even if it was at that time, probably that would not have been. He might not have been open to it. Cause yeah. I think, yeah, I think it was probably something he wanted to get rid of. Yeah. We mentioned that directly after primal therapy, John's language became more aggressively homophobic. Like in Lennon Remembers, he drops the F slur five separate times. Unprovoked. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, there's also some glimpses in Plastic Otoban that at least that I hear, like that line about how masturbation won't get you nowhere, won't make you a man, um, which isn't homophobic per se, unless you're doing it with someone. But it is. Yeah still odd like what what does get you nowhere mean like where where is masturbation supposed to get you <laughs> right that's not a crazy question right it just it needs any it no. kind of, it's in the middle of a song about disillusionment which is weird too yeah and the whole like won't get you nowhere just feels like it comes straight out of you know purity culture like fundamentalist the idea that masturbation is self-abuse well won't make you a man like what is that yeah what is that that's almost implying like you're less of a man by doing it or something like it's weird Uh, like what are you why are you being weird now yeah like the only healthy expression of sexuality is Is with a woman heterosexual sex (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah i mean that's what it reads like and in my opinion he's implying sometimes that beetle music is inherently gay somehow <laughs> or just or just at least not straight enough to be, to be for workers it's really just revolutionary you know i just think its concept is revolutionary and i i hope it's for workers and not for tarts and fags you know? i guess socialism isn't for gays well, and also, or like, what gays don't have jobs? Like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, oh, all those know. unemployed gays on the welfare <laughs> rolls, I guess. And and the tarts, so they're not workers either. <laughs> they're too busy hoeing to listen to working class hero. <laughs> if they put down all those dicks, that's what it is. Dicks is the problem. So also in 1971, John made numerous comments where he equated being in the Beatles with being gay, uh, which also comes seemingly out of nowhere. Yeah. I never even see this acknowledged, let alone analyzed. I mean, he's attempting to push back on the accusation 
I, I guess, real or perceived, <laughs> right? Uh, that uh, he and Yoko are codependent, which uh, where would anyone get that idea? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> but he's saying, you know, look, the alternative to being with my wife 24 seven is to be with the Beatles 24 seven, which none of you had a problem with. So back off, which is fine. Right. Yeah. But it's so defensive and aggressive. Like, no one said you were gay, John. Like you took it there. And also exactly. like plenty of guys have wives and bands at the same time. Like it's normal. <laughs> it's not gay to be in a band. <laughs> it's not, you know, no. I don't know where you got that idea, but, yeah. but what the fuck are you talking about? Right. It's, you know, to make a fantastic sort of um, some kind of uh, theory out of us is ridiculous, you know. And to say, well, this is a sign of uh, dependence or, you know, whatever. Both of us are very strong people and also very vulnerable, but sort of unusually strong people. By now, you must have realized... The life is that nobody ever know. said... Uh, they, they did say to us Beatles, as Beatles, uh, don't you get in each other's nerves? I suppose that was the mm. same question, but they didn't... Re now they're howling because we parted. But uh, at the, there were times when I spent as much time with George, Paul and Ringo as I did with Yoko. I mean, I slept with them in the same room, in twin beds, of course, mm -hmm. on tour. And I lived, ate and breathed with them for five or ten years or they something. They didn't mind that. Nobody said that about four young fags living together, <laughs> right? That was all right. Not a word. Know, that but was to a man and a woman, oh yeah. my goodness, what's going on there with each other all the time? Mm -hmm. That's, there must be something perverse about it. Well, it's not fashionable it anymore, I suppose, you know, but it's all right with us because it works, you know. It's not yeah, it's, fashionable. It's not fashionable anymore, I suppose. I, I, what is she talking about? What's not fashionable? <laughs> Heterosexuality isn't fashionable? I don't... <laughs> I mean, maybe her sitting by his side 24-7 could come off to some people as old-fashioned like subservient yeah yeah like the silent woman on the sidelines walking 10 <laughs> steps behind her or whatever her whole argument though is that nobody accepts her because everyone's a chauvinist and she's a feminist i know yeah well maybe it's kind of like we're so backwards we're feminist oh lord they're not advanced enough to see that it's not chauvinist it's really just feminist squared <laughs> feminism oh, times no. two. Oh, they give me a headache fashionable <laughs> i'm sorry i'm sorry it's not fashionable anymore anymore <laughs> <laughs> women used to be the number one fashion accessory for men <laughs> but the tone that i fucking hate about this is that she's like well, what do you want? You want him to be a fag and be in a band mm. with the fucking Beatles? I know you don't mm -hmm. want that, so leave it alone. At least we're a heterosexual couple. Yeah. And and that's what John is saying, too. I feel like this is a Yoko idea that he's putting voice to. Or a Janov idea. Or something that she's given him the courage to say and he's latched onto. Or he she said, already... like, why do you need to be in that band anymore? What are you, fucking gay? And maybe that's something that he was struggling with before she came. And then when she confirmed it, it was kind of like, perfect. This is my, she's oh, going to sure. be my partner to break out of this unhealthy 
cycle that I've got myself in and that is bringing me nothing but pain. Well, I do agree with that. I do agree that he was like, this is the solution here. And, but for me, I hear this and I, I hear John saying like, it was the situation that created this for me. Like, it's not me. Like homosexuality isn't real. Love between men is not real. It's not something that I really wanted. It's just a situation. It's a um, prison situation. You know, like I was just in a, a trapped environment that I, where I was being suffocated and I got Stockholm syndrome or something. And yeah. like, I thought that I loved him, but it, honestly, it was just my neediness. And so now that I've broken out of that unhealthy situation. Right. That was probably a product of my childhood, not getting enough love for my <laughs> yes. parents or whatever. That's a common bullshit theory among homophobic psychologists. Yeah, or the um, overbearing mother, yeah. also Abs- absent father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All these crackpot gay mm-hmm. theories. Yeah, right. those. I mean, those existed well into I think like the eighties and nineties. I mean, you could probably still in some backwoods. Oh, no doubt. Find it. No doubt. Yeah. Or on Arthur Janov's official <laughs> blog, and I can see John, you know, finding that argument convincing because he is a prime example of someone who didn't get enough love from his parents and had an overbearing mother in the form of Mimi. Absolutely, you could. You <laughs> could. Perfect storm. Yes, like I said, this is not a this is not a um, uncommon belief system even among queer people in this era. Like that was kind of the mainstream. Uh, mm-hmm. opinion i mean like it's, especially between john and paul you know like uh, because they're so uh, close to each other that uh, i'm sure in the past 10 years they'd be uh you know uh sort of nagging at each other whatever you know uh every day you know and and also uh cheering together you know that kind of thing i mean uh any couple would go through uh you know, swearing at each other to kissing and hugging, you it know, every day. It is a strange day. thing, though, that the whole of the world yeah. would like four men to stay together, you know. <laughs> I and, know. And blissful youthfulness, always shaking their heads and uh, being the fab four, you know, and never having any women in the scene. You know, mm. very strange seeing the whole world so wants, wants four flags that's... to go on together, you know, forever. Well, that's what the, the <laughs> suggestion would be by now, if that's actually what had happened. Is it, though? Is that what people would be suggesting? Really? Well, that's a good question. Howard Smith is the interviewer here. And either he's just going along with them and agreeing with them because he wants them to know that he he got the point of what they were saying. Right, right, right. Or he actually believes it. It, And then that's a pretty wild statement that like if the Beatles hadn't broken up by this point, people would start thinking that they were gay. Why does Howard Smith think that? If he does, is that, is that yeah. actually a thing? Was there some water cooler talk starting up about about those Beatles? Like, I've never seen anything that would suggest that. Um, and so maybe it's like you said initially, maybe he's just kind of like, yeah, you're right. Yeah. That is a normal thing to say, John, because that is a justified read on... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. On your situation. <laughs> Thank goodness you escaped before that inevitable commentary started flowing. Oh, well, if you're breaking up to stop looking like lovers, then that backfired for sure. <laughs> right? 
anything, that's what would have started rumors. And Joan says, like, being the Fab Four, you know, never having any women in the scene. Not for nothing, John, but you had a lot of women in the scene. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I guess he's saying yeah. we had no women in the band, which is different. I take his point, like if he's trying to be a feminist, mm-hmm. you know, and he's saying like we should women should have an equal presence in music or something like terrific. Yeah. Congratulations on that. Yes. Very liberated Bravo. thing to say. Yeah. Um, as you shoot yourself in the foot. <laughs> rest <laughs> of your statement. Uh, it's such a weird false comparison. Which, it's like well, either you every- have a woman in the band or you're gay. Are all bands gay? What are you saying, John? So the bottom line is, John doesn't go to New Orleans. Yeah. We're not saying that Yoko forced John to counsel on Paul. We don't want it to seem as though we're blaming Yoko for everything. Just because Yoko might be making an effort to keep them apart doesn't mean that John had to acquiesce to that. However, I mean, I don't think the timing of everything here is coincidental. No. Like the same way that the timing of Yoko's visit to Paul wasn't coincidental. I mean, it could be coincidental, especially if it's if it has something to do with like ovulating or whatever, then it would be fairly coincidental. But if John and Yoko are talking often, which they are in this period, then she would certainly know all about the Beatles dissolution and she may or may not have gotten wind of John's plans to go to New Orleans. I think Yoko's sort of icing May out a little bit at this, at this time. So, but it would be logical to assume that if Yoko got wind that, that John and May are going to go down for a romantic holiday in new orleans with paul like that oh, that's is true not gonna be cool oh you guys are gonna double date in like the big easy <laughs> i don't think so <laughs> you know <laughs> well and also talk is cheap but john and may were talking about getting a place like getting a home like on long island or something so okay. they're, you know they're they're starting to sort of sort of amp up their relationship right maybe going off script as far as Yoko was concerned yes exactly exactly and so how much how much of that John was going to follow through with is not known how much of it no John is sharing with Yoko is not known how much how much of it John is waving in Yoko's face to provoke her is not known (laughs) you know who knows what kind of mind games are going on the bottom line is that John doesn't go but we do have evidence that he was excited about it. Yeah, uh, strong evidence. He repeatedly expressed to May that it was a good idea. He was excited. They were going to do it. And I think excited is the right word because I think he was nervous, too. I don't see how he could not be nervous. Well, fair enough. Fair enough. And, and you know, that story we have from Art Garfunkel where... After the Grammy Awards, John pulls Art Garfunkel aside and is like, listen, I'm thinking about going down to New Orleans and hanging out with my Paul, mm-hmm. you know, and writing songs together again with him or whatever. And like, what do you think? How did it go with you? And with your Paul. Your Paul. That shows that he he likes the idea and he's he's still thinking about it. 
Sure. The point is, it wasn't a case of disinterest. I mean, personally, I think that he just choked. I think he was scared. And, you know, if Yoko gave him an easy out. Yeah. He'd just take it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, he decided to take it. To be fair, (laughs) there's a lot of intense emotions involved. There's a lot of history. There's a lot of baggage. There's a lot of pressure. It's a risk. Even though New Orleans is sort of a neutral territory for them, Paul is making his album. He's coming off giant, enormous, huge hit with Band on the Run. Yeah, so the tables are turned a bit. Even Yoko in 1990, she mentions that. She says, they turned the tables on each other a few times. Everything was going in John's favor in the early 70s with Imagine and whatever. But yeah. Paul had a huge success with Wings and that turned the tables on John. Like she even said that. Yeah. And I'm sure everyone there would have been really nice to John. Like it's not he, like he would be walking into a hostile territory. I'm sure <laughs> right. all the members of Wings would be like, awesome, it's John Lennon. But it's still Paul's session. It's Paul's gig. It's Paul's album. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. If John was manipulated into canceling his New Orleans trip, it's because there was a big part of him that wanted to be. And a big part of that, I have to think, would be because of Ben on the Run's success. Like, I don't enjoy thinking that, but we have enough evidence all throughout the 70s and even before. I mean, he he told Paul that he had to smother his jealousy for him in order to go to work. Yeah. On their own, on their joint album. Both of them want to present their best to each other. You know, I'm sure it was good for Paul to come and see John in 1974 after Band on the Run has come out. Like, that's a lot better than <laughs> than, than right after Wildlife. Yeah, when, right. you know when like everybody's just <laughs> trashing him to hell and yeah. back. Yeah, totally. Seeing somebody after a long time, you want to look good. You want to feel good. Totally. You know? Even if you don't care about that person anymore, <laughs> right, you still right. kind of care about what they think of you. Sure, exactly. At least I do. Yeah. I mean, John has plenty of reason to be nervous or scared or reticent on an emotional level due to his past hurts grievances, conflicts, all of that stuff with Paul. Yeah. And those are real. I mean, we don't, you know, we're not trying to uh, erase them or downplay them or whatever. Sure, Yeah. To make it all about John's ego or whatever. But anyway, John doesn't go to New Orleans. He gets back together with Yoko and he tells May, Yoko knows I still love you. And she said, you could be my mistress. So John and May continue to sleep together a couple times per week for the next two months while John's working on his uh, rock and roll album. He just has to like mix it and finalize it and stuff like that. Like they go to work and see each other <laughs> yeah. in the studio. And then a couple times a week, they go home. They to go Mays home together. Together. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then John eventually just goes to her. Side note, though, the Yoko is a feminist defender. Nobody Mm. has shit to say about the way that they treated May. Well, I mean, that is sexual harassment to the nth degree. Well, and it's it's such a red flag, too. Really? Do you really do you really care that? Just say you like Yoko. Just say you're on her side. Like, don't make it into a feminist thing. Yeah. Yeah. Such bullshit. Francis Schoenberger asked him in 1975, like, What's up with May Pang? Where is she now? And John's like, well, she knew the deal. Uh, like, how are you gross. defending that? They're so That's... nasty to her. 
and how could it be anything else the way that it started like it is inexcusable to go to your employee and tell them to go fuck your husband and it was inexcusable for john to go along with it and then in, in may's book she's she suspects that she was blacklisted after she she broke up with john because well no doubt yeah he, she tried to get a job and somebody like oh. one of the producers or whatever was like sorry but you know i i you can't be on any project that john lennon's on <gasps> and she was like oh fuck me that means nobody is gonna yeah. hire me if there's any chance that john lennon is so obviously they're gonna side with john lennon like yeah. that's kind of the end of her career in music it, i mean i'm sure that it wasn't john's intention for her to get blackballed but it still happened and uh, yeah he didn't do anything about it he didn't do anything about it yeah once again john's worst behaviors blot out his <laughs> really bad but slightly less bad like the fact that he tried to throttle may Pang gets attention not enough but it gets some attention but because there's that people don't even go hold on hold on why are they even in a relationship that is not okay this is one time when the oh this is when they met in the bar and he says i want to remind you that whatever you read in interviews that i give about our time together uh, are things i have to say you know how I really feel about you. You know why I have to say these things, he told me. Oh, fuck off, John. Seriously. It's like, do you really have to say them, John? Yeah. Like, can, can you, you just tell Yoko to fuck off like once? Can you take a little responsibility to show the people who you say you love in your life that you do love them? Like, <laughs> not just expect them to take whatever you dish out and know that, you know, well, I know what John really feels about me, and that's enough. Like that is that is in, an insane expectation to have. <laughs> I of know it's just it's just, and and he's a famous and powerful guy and has been since he was twenty one years old. So obviously he's going to have some major entitlement issues. But still, here we go. I hated to admit it, but John was like a baby. He really did not want to deal with the fact that some of his needs would never be satisfied. And so he went back to an environment in which his needs were controlled for him. I suspected that as time went on, his life would be made simpler and simpler. It was horrible, but John felt most secure when his life was the most childlike. I think this assessment of Maze is actually the fairest thing we can say. And the kindest way we can frame John's issues is that he was an emotionally needy and fragile person with a lot of fears and insecurities. I don't think he became that way overnight. And I definitely think Paul McCartney knew and knows and is sensitive to all of this. Yeah, I agree. And I think John ultimately did what he felt he needed to do to feel safe. So in spring of 1975, John gives this interview to Francis Schoenberger at Spin Magazine. Schoenberger asks, you said once on radio that your separation from Yoko was just a failure. What did you mean? John, well, it's a joke. They always say their marriage was a failure at every divorce. 
Ours was the other way around. Our separation was a failure. We knew we would get together one day, but it could have been 10 years, like Natalie Wood and Robert Wagner. We could have gone that long. It was fate, or our decision, or whatever. I don't know how it worked. We knew we'd get back together one way or another, but had no idea when. We probably would never bother getting a divorce. I mean, if you're living apart, you are as divorced as can be. Question. What if you had wanted to marry again? John. I don't think I'd ever bother. If this one didn't work out, then it ain't worth bothering about. <laughs> okay. It was fate or our decision or whatever. I don't know how it worked. <laughs> to me, that just screams. It was whatever Yoko says. I don't, I don't remember the party line. I co-sign whatever Yoko says. Yes, exactly. That's pretty rough. And you know that he has the ability afterward to be like, uh, let me rephrase Seriously? that particular part. <laughs> right? And he doesn't bother. Like, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, he's like, all right, Yoko, I did it. Okay. Good enough, right? <laughs> Put minimal effort into selling this story. That's brutal. Not to laugh at other people's marital problems, but... I mean, it's kind of hard, honestly, to get a read on John's mental state at this time. Well, sure. Because uh, yeah. sometimes, like this interview, he sounds utterly out to lunch, doesn't give a shit, and, and uh-huh. honestly sounds kind of despondent. But he does also do some appearances where he sounds upbeat. So I- I'm going to guess that it was probably a mix. Yeah. You know, it's kind of a weird situation. And this is not even about necessarily them but just trying to put yourself sure in this position of they've been separated for 18 months and statistically the odds are pretty bleak for couples who've Mm. been separated yeah um i googled this so (laughs) 87 percent of couples who get separated end in divorce so yeah which makes sense it's like separation is the first step towards divorce, basically. Yeah, yeah, it's the first symptom, pending death. It seems like most couples are like, well, let's get separated and then see how we enjoy it. And like almost 90% of the time, they're like, yeah, this was a good decision. Let's yeah, go ahead and this, follow the this is much better. I mean, being amongst the 13% who get back together, I don't know what that feels like. Like maybe on one hand, you're like, oh, we beat the odds. Well, and like John says, he says, I would never bother getting a divorce, I guess. And they are in sort of a rarefied situation where they can get back together, but not have to really live together. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, they're not in a two bedroom bungalow and they have to <laughs> be together. You have to eat at the same table. They have what, six six apartments in the Dakota, something like that. So it's not like they, they only have one TV, so they have to like share remote privileges or anything like that for sure well and she literally was like you can fuck whoever you want i don't well yeah and then that apparently was at least according to them that was the main reason that they separated although yoko has also said like we just spent way too much time together and i needed a break basically (laughs) which is believable because very very they're enmeshed to an insane level so yeah um well, here's the other question is, do you want to get divorced from Yoko Ono? You want to you take her to court? I do not. 
here's another thing that I've never seen anybody talk about. Like John literally just finalized his divorce from Paul and the Beatles. And that took years. That is true. How exhausting was that? Like, we know that was emotionally draining. Yeah. Which is a really good point. It's how he sounds here where he's like, no, I'm not going through this again. Fuck it. Let's just make it work. Yeah. Yeah. Unless there was some huge pressing need. Why would he, you know, it's going to cost him financially. It's going to take a long time. Yoko is not going to go quietly, presumably. Um, she's going to be a worthy adversary. For sure. And also, you know, even though they were separated for 18 months, they were still talking to each other all the time. So Every day, yeah. Are they going to go cold turkey and not see each other and just break oh, it off? Oh, yeah. You yeah. Know, like they're codependent for good or ill that's why i think john just kind of sounds resigned where he's just like i'm tired of fighting i'm swimming upstream here and it's exhausting yeah i guess this is how it's gonna be so i'm not gonna fight it anymore fuck it he's not the first person to say that in a marriage either lots of people stay in unhappy marriages yeah obviously some people just have humps and then they get over them and then it turns Mm -hmm. out better that's also common you know, even if he's feeling low now, he might very well be thinking, we've been here before and it got better before, so I'll stick it out until it happens again. He's still allowed to see May if he wants. Well, and he's still talking to Paul, too. Yeah, that's a good point, that they are still communicating a little, seems like. I mean, John gives numerous interviews and appearances in the first half of the year, and it sounds like everything's okay between them. And in May 1975, when John goes to Philly, he says, I talked to Paul yesterday. So it sounds like they're still talking fairly frequently. And in another interview for Game Magazine, John says, I was going down to New Orleans to help out on Paul's last album, Venus and Mars, but I was too busy being happy at the time. If you're reading this, Paul, I'm sorry I couldn't make it. He mentions Yoko's pregnancy in this interview. Um, it's not dated exactly, but from what we can tell, it was probably in summer of 1975. Which brings us to Sean. He came into the world in October. And John sort of disappears from the public eye at that point, I think. Which isn't really yeah. so unusual in and of itself, because he just had a baby. Well, sure. In a letter that we found that was addressed to Rock Scalar. It was like a TV executive or um, booking huh. agent or whatever. John turns down a, an offer for a TV appearance, but he <laughs> adds in the letter, I'm currently going through one of my 18 month or so retreats, a la primal therapy. Oh my God. There's that mention again. Meditations in the Himalayas, something which I have been doing even as a child. <laughs> Yoko's pregnancy, thank God, is going well and happens to coincide with my natural and instinctive hibernations. Um, (laughs) So I think, you know, John is referring to being a homebody. Little hermit phases. Okay. Um, But so maybe he was just taking a break, at least at first, like intending to take a short break, like a paternity leave or something. Yeah, which would make perfect sense. Um, But starting around late 75, early 76, we don't get many interviews from John anymore. And the ones we do have, he sounds increasingly bitter 
pessimistic and possibly depressed. There's a tape from him from late 75 where he's answering some like write-in questions and he says, Do you ever feel threatened, afraid, lonely here? Does the city ever swallow you up? Well, I feel threatened, afraid, and lonely everywhere. So that's nothing new. All right. And January 76 was when he told Elliot Mintz. The last time we, yes. the last time we talked about Beatles and the like, yes. you said all your memories, you said almost quote, all your memories of that experience are now uh, good ones and you've raced all the stuff that was uh, upsetting you. And now the, the thing that you just want to keep in mind is that the music was good and it's done. That's pretty uh, much where we left it. Is it good, you, good. That must have been when I was getting positive. Yeah, uh, I, I, I like that. That must have been when I was getting positive. Oh, it's so sad to hear him say that. Yeah, in the past tense. Yeah. Back, way back when. Right. Yeah. I was young then. Oh, right. My positive period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As opposed to my default state, which, you know, as a person who, with cyclical depressions, like that, that is what it feels like. When you are positive, you're like, oh, finally, the real me. This is who I was meant to be. And then when the depression comes back, you're like, no, that was just a little detour. Now I'm back here again. I'll always come back here. It'll never last. The good times will never last. What, I he just, seems depressed. I just wish that it could have been treated. Well, for sure. The we should acknowledge is. it. And we shouldn't let the propaganda of Happy House Husband just paper over the, <laughs> I'm sorry, but the obvious reality that he was in a depression during this time. We can't diagnose John. We're not pretending that we can do that, but it seems pretty apparent that he's got a mood disorder, but also, you know, maybe it's being shut inside a little bit. It's winter that affects some sure. people, you know, mm -hmm. maybe it's being a dad because even though Sean isn't his first child, it is the first time that John's ever spent prolonged periods around a baby. Yes. And a lot of people don't like that. And then also, and this is important, if you have issues with your own parents, having kids very often reopens those wounds. So there's lots of potential reasons why. Right, right. But, and the why, the why he's feeling this way, it's not as important as just acknowledging that he is feeling low. And again, like you said, this happy house husband nonsense whitewashes John's problems. That trope is harmful for exactly the same reason a happy housewife trope is harmful yeah. because yeah it's a misleading impression of, of what having a baby is like a baby is a massive amount of work more to the point like babies can't save a broken marriage they can't solve your mental health problems they can't fix your issues with your parents and they don't heal emotional damage from past relationships or or make up for your prior bad parenting they're they're That's, not a panacea to your no. fucking life problems. No, they're you're, <laughs> it's like you're just creating problems for somebody else that you're bringing exactly. into the world. Anyways, um, whatever he's going through, it does appear that he's pulling Paul down with him. In other words, as he's feeling worse about himself, he's feeling worse about Paul. Right. You've got a lot And from what you've got I'd say you're doing well, dear So let's talk for a minute about 
one important issue that comes up in the Lennon-McCartney story um, regularly, and that issue is jealousy. So we have to remember that in late 75, early 76, Paul is on a huge tour with Wings. He's selling out shows and finally getting good reviews, too. <laughs> Uh, by the time he arrives in New York in the late spring of 76, he's already completed huge tours in the UK, Australia, Western Europe. And in April 1976, he's about to kick off his U.S. tour. Klaus Vorman visited John in this period around April 76, when Sid Bernstein offered $230 million for the Beatles to reunite. And on this subject, John told him, I can't go out there and play with those boys. In particular, this one boy. Too much shit went down to make that gig a happy one. That's Klaus's recollection of, of what John said. But that quote certainly suggests that John is slowly getting more negative, suspicious, and bitter about Paul. And here's another excerpt from that spin interview conducted the year before, just after John moved back in with Yoko. Uh, Schoenberger asks, how is it for an 11-year-old boy to have John Lennon as a father? And John says, it must be hell. Schoenberger asks, does he talk about that to you? And John says, no, because he's a Beatle fan. I mean, what do you expect? I think he likes Paul better than me. I have the funny feeling he wishes Paul was his dad. But unfortunately, he got me. That's pretty devastating. Yeah. And John brought up Paul out of nowhere, by the way. Like, he was not asked about Paul. He was asked no. about Julian. Mm -hmm. And this is a direct quote from John to Spin Magazine, clearly revealing his paranoia that his own son loves Paul more than him. Yeah. I definitely think we can label as paranoia because I don't think there's any basis for that. Like, what? No. Why would he even say that? Yeah. That is revealing some sort of really massive insecurity on John's part. Which makes it all the worse that John's jealousy isn't a major topic of discussion. Paul has mentioned it many times. He even mentions it in his upcoming lyrics book when discussing mm. uh, Dear Friend. Yeah. And it's not a brag on Paul's part, by the way. He like He's not <laughs> saying... Everyone was jealous of me because I'm yeah. so awesome. Yeah, you know, who wouldn't be. He's just saying that jealousy was a problem between him and John. And yeah. this is a great example of that issue, which, like I said, Paul has flagged many times over the years. And which John admitted to during his lifetime, like, yeah, frequently. Parenthood can't help but impact someone's um, identity and opinion of themselves and their self-worth again i have a lot of the sympathy for john but seriously like he's projecting all of that onto julian he's making it julian's fault Julian's like, problem yeah he, exactly like he doesn't say you know oh it must be terrible for julian because i suck um <laughs> it would have been better for him to have paul as a dad because paul's a better dad than me like if he had said that it would have been wow john you're being hard on yourself but no, he's, yeah. he's not. He's being hard on his son. He's like, my fucking traitor of a son wishes he would have Paul. Wow. Even, 
if that were true, it would be extremely right. inappropriate to say out loud. Seriously, oh, yeah. even if Julian, his who's eleven years old, by the way, had said that to him, it would right. be absolutely unconscionable for John to repeat it in an interview. Yeah, it's terrible. And again, I'm not saying this just to like dump on John to be mean or whatever. I'm just saying, like, what does this reveal about him? Yeah. And if we're not blaming julian for this like if 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 we're not like no john was that's a completely normal thing for john to say julian must have been a horrible person who deserved it okay if that's not the case then perhaps not everybody who john did this shit to deserved it is that maybe something Mm. that we should think about maybe so that's a really good point in 1982 Paul said to Hunter Davies in that famous conversation over the phone off the record that Hunter printed, (laughs) he told him that John became so jealous in the end, you know, he wouldn't even let me touch his baby. He got crazy with jealousy at times. I've always thought that was a really interesting interpretation on Paul's part because the first place your mind would go is be like, oh, well, he was um, a germaphobe and didn't want you know, to, to give germs to the baby. Well, here's the thing is I've seen people rationalize it like, oh, well, come on, let's give John the benefit of the doubt. He wouldn't let Paul touch his baby because he was a germaphobe, you know, like, which by the way, that would be a normal thing. Like, oh no, please, the baby's had a cold and, you know, fine. Like, I agree. This quote from Paul, given no context, does sound like, what are you talking about, Paul? But when you put it in context of this quote from Spin Magazine, it makes complete sense. Absolutely. I feel like we should be giving Paul the benefit of the doubt that he knows John well enough to understand that. And it's not like Paul projects bad faith onto John. Like he he gives John the benefit of the doubt whenever possible. He wouldn't make this up, especially one of the few things that Paul has been transparent about nearly making him cry was the fact that John had such a difficult time being a father and with kids and stuff. That story about him trying to explain to John how to play with Julian, how that really choked him up. Paul doesn't want to see John as a weird father. He would, you know, plus why would he lie to Hunter Davies off the record about it? Well, exactly. It sounds weird because he's speaking off the cuff. He's just venting. Like he gives no context for the story. So you'd be like, wait, 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 back up. What? Paul's going to pair bond with Sean so intensely in the, just by holding him (laughs) that Sean is going to love Paul more than John. Like that's crazy. Well, and John doesn't have to have like thought this through. It could just be a matter of, you know, on an, on an unconscious or subconscious level or whatever, being like, I remember watching Paul bond with Julian. That was painful. If Paul holds Sean, that will remind me of that and be painful. It, he doesn't necessarily have to think it will actually happen. He could yeah, just be afraid that's true. Of, it, of it making him sad. I don't need to see Paul make my kid laugh louder than I've ever heard him, which is not an irrational fear because Paul's a big doof and loves kids and, you know. Yeah. That doesn't mean that John will love Paul more, but it, again, it just, John doesn't want to have his feelings hurt that way. Why would he? Well, and there's a quote from Julian saying, yeah, I saw him at my dad's house with May Pang or whatever, and we were wrestling. 
so again, I could imagine if, if John is the type of dad who just yeah. sort of like sits on the couch with a space between them, you know, but right, we're like, yeah. Paul walks in the room and he's like, Julian. And like, he's wrestling with him and like right. picking him up and throwing him around and stuff. Yeah. So like mm-hmm. John could be like, mm-hmm. really? You know? I, have to, I have to, we have to have this again. Yeah. Can you not, can you not Paul? Paul's not Julian's dad. He's the fun uncle. Your fun <laughs> uncle is a different animal than your dad, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you got dad yeah. issues with your dad that you don't have with your fun uncle. Yep. So we're going to talk about the infamous incident where John basically told Paul to stop popping into the Dakota unannounced. But before we do that, I think we need to talk about something potentially like very important that doesn't often get factored in. We've talked about John becoming a dad again in this period. And another potential trigger that we shouldn't overlook here is both John's and Paul's dads dying in 1976 within a couple weeks of each other. It's difficult to know what effect Alf's death had on John, but I think it's reasonable to assume there was some effect. Yeah, you think so? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it likely was not a positive one since right, right. Alf abandoned John. Or at least that's how John perceives it. Uh, Alf wrote John some letters before he died because he was writing his autobiography that nobody was interested in publishing. So he ended up just writing it for kind of his own benefit. But like at the end of each chapter, he would write a little note to John. And it was basically Mm. like, I hope someday you see my point of view. To be honest, like it's, it's not the warmest um like when i read them they were kind of like i'm not that bad self-involved yeah it's kind of that same template of like well it's not my fault because things weren't fair to me either you know yeah like don't judge me you know it had (laughs) more of that tone than like you know what i'm sorry i couldn't be a better father you deserve better there's none of that like that is just Mm. not a part of john's family at all nobody says that ever anyways um (laughs) But apparently when Jim died, uh, John called Paul right away. So John, John was very aware that Paul uh, was grieving or not grieving or, you know, avoiding, <laughs> grieving, avoiding yeah. <laughs> as the case may be. So maybe there was jealousy over Paul's success, but maybe it was also partly about the dad situation. John's resentment of Paul's home life. Maybe Paul didn't reach out to John about Alf or John felt like Paul wasn't receptive when John gave his condolences. Basically, there was an emotionally fraught conversation of some kind before this interaction, this uh, John turning Paul away. Yeah, like, honestly, I, I have a hard time even imagining how that conversation would go. Yeah, right? me, t- me too. First of all, it's it's mind-boggling to even think how devastated Paul was about this. Yeah. yeah. And we know that, that Paul was 
definitely shutting down like crazy about this. Yeah. Like the other, the people in Wings didn't even know it had happened until like days later. Death is very, very difficult for Paul. So who knows how Paul might have reacted is what we're saying to John calling about Jim, which he did right away, apparently, when it was still, you know, probably Paul was probably still in shock about it. And maybe Paul was super weird to John. Yeah. I can totally see that him just being like really weird, really cold, dismissive, who knows? Or maybe not. Maybe they had a good heart to heart. I have no idea. Uh, that's the it, thing it could go any way when, and yeah. and we will never ever know because paul will no. never talk about it and john it's, can't talk about it so it's it's in the vault yeah so that's number one like who knows what was going on with that and then and then after that john's own father dies yeah like holy shit plus he's a he's a new dad we know he thinks that he's a shit father to julian at least yeah you know, his own self-image as a father is terrible. There's all kinds of other issues between John and Paul. So if John wanted to dip into that well of resentments, he absolutely could. If he wants something to be pissed off about, he can certainly find something. You could have maybe thought you would put it to bed in the past, but then Mm -hmm. as soon as there's motivation, it can come, can rise from the grave if you're thinking about the baby and then he's like he's feeling resentful or jealous about that that can lead to other shit that he's resentful and jealous about and other shit that paul didn't like oh and then there was also that time that he had to show me up about this thing and like why is he such a fucking asshole he's got to be he's got to be the best all the time at everything you know yeah just goes into a bad place yeah I don't think John even needed that much of a reason (laughs) to go. (laughs) Like, I think sometimes his own just brain chemistry threw him in that direction. And then, plus, here's another thing that, just to bring it up, because I never hear anybody ever talk about this, is that, you know, maybe John felt guilty about how do you sleep and Lennon remembers. What? No. (laughs) Well, the thing is... John Lennon, guilty (laughs) about putting Paul in his place especially in 1974 when everybody saw them uh being friendly and getting together and hanging out right. and whatever john was directly asked about how do you sleep so many times in 74 and 75 like every tv appearance they're like oh you're getting along with paul now that's great do you regret how do you sleep <laughs> Here he is talking to Bob Harris for the old gray whistle test in April of 1975. In retrospect now, do you regret how do you sleep? No, somebody said the other day, it's about me. You know, I regret that it, it, it was so, not what the song is. I, two things I regretted. One, that there was so much talk about Paul. I mean, they missed the song, it was a good track. And I should have, you know, kept my mouth shut. Not on the song, it could have been about anybody, you know, I mean. And when, when you look at them back, you know, Dylan said it about his stuff, that he found out most of it's about him. So it's not about Paul, it's about me. You know, I'm really attacking myself. That's as close as John ever came to saying, you know, this song says more about my issues than Paul's. And I'm projecting a lot of self-criticism onto Paul. I wish he had dumbed that down a little bit because it seems like it goes over a lot of people's heads. Like I, I, I see people take it literally. Yeah. 
like I appreciate that he said that that's just my opinion not everybody agrees I I know that you're a little unimpressed with this quote but uh yeah I am well regardless of what he said he had to answer for it multiple times he and he had to talk about something he didn't want to talk about that would have (laughs) been exhausting and annoying right and yeah. then if he feels guilty about it, he's not going to sit with that feel like he doesn't. I mean, first of all, gonna, nobody likes yeah. to feel guilty. So that's of course not normal. It's one of the worst emotions there is. Right. <laughs> so how do we think John Lennon is going to process guilt? You know, like if he feels guilty about doing that to Paul, he's going to he's not going to be cool with that feeling. <laughs> so he's going to maybe turn it on Paul at some point. I mean, that's how people deal with guilt. So as we all know, Paul usually speaks about how do you sleep in forgiving tones and is quick to point out that this was not the last word on how John felt about him. But Phoebe has found an interview with him where he's a little more raw about it. And it's fascinating. So Paul gave an interview for Time magazine that was published in May 1976. And he says... I find that I had to leave all that behind. It's a decision you make, that's all. Otherwise, I would have ended up thinking John was the most evil person on this earth saying all that. Hmm. That is so striking. That is the harshest language that Paul has ever used about how do you sleep and also maybe ever about John. Yeah. Full stop. What are the other examples? John was a quote unquote maneuvering swine, right? In his rant. Yeah. To babies. And even maneuvering swine is a paraphrase of what John called himself. True. That's what he said in Lennon Remembers. Sure. It's like, I maneuver sure. people. Yeah. Isn't that what life's all about? <laughs> exactly. Manipulating people to get what you want. Maneuvering is what it is. Let's not be coy about it. It's a deliberate and and thought out maneuver of how to get a situation how we want it. That's how life's about, isn't it? So this is definitely the strongest statement of deep hurt Paul has ever given about how do you sleep. Yeah. And the use of the word evil indicates to me that he knew that John released it calculatingly, which I think is absolutely true. I think evil is the right word to use because it is, I feel that it's malicious. It is. It's malicious and it's dishonest. Right. There's a difference between, oh, poor John just had hurt feelings and he was just Mm -mm. expressing his hurt feelings. Like, no, I don't buy that. There is a huge difference materially in the effect that putting this song on his album, on his best-selling album, is going to have versus just something that he said, you know, just to be bitchy or whatever. That's right. different than like recording, mixing, printing the lyrics and putting yeah. it on the Imagine album. And it's not a moment of anger. Like it's not. It, it's, it's not. Inviting a gang of people who know Paul to yes. join in. It's not like John at this point doesn't understand the impact that his words have. Like, the Manson murders have just happened they experienced that whole Jesus scandal like he knows that what he says has legs and to pretend like 
there's no difference between something your friend says in anger versus right. something you say from a bully pulpit. Like he has a bully pulpit. If Paul's critics hadn't taken up all these talking points about him for the rest of eternity, you could make the case that it had no impact. But John is an authority. He's, yeah. he's got to be considered an authority on Paul McCartney because he worked with him for 10 years. And I think John knew ahead of time the damage it would have on Paul's reputation. And I think that's part of why he did it. It's cruel and inexcusable. And, and Paul is saying, like, I can't deal with that. Right. Or wish we had never met or something. I can't cope with the idea that I would have been better off without John in my life. That is non-negotiable. And I just had to make the conscious choice not to let it ruin our relationship and just block out John's worst behavior, which is how everyone who loves John deals with him. Well, and beyond that, I think there's also a bit of, and it seems like that John kind of went through this too in a different way, but I almost feel like Paul is saying, if I accept that he is evil, that kind of obliterates the sort of bedrock of a lot of my life's thus far you know what I mean (laughs) absolutely if our whole relationship was a lie he's just a fucking psychopath who looked in my eyes and said I love you and didn't mean it like that's a Mm. problem (laughs) that's a big problem that's a real big problem you know you know so and I feel like John kind of did the same because it absolutely like we see john flip out about it he abandons his entire belief system after the breakup yeah and he tells fred seaman years later that he found out that friendship was a romantic illusion yeah because of (laughs) paul can we just talk about that for a second like seriously that's extreme that is so extreme first of all that he hurt me so much to the point like I will never have another friend again period end of story I'm done no one is ever getting close to me again but then also like friendship is a romantic illusion that is so wild does that mean like I'm a fucking romantic moron and I just deluded myself all these years yeah love is fake yeah love is fake Although, ironically, he writes the song to Yoko on Plastic Unabanned in which he sings Love is Real. Although, one of the, the most gut-wrenching parts of that song, to me, is when he sings Love is Knowing We Can Be. Like, just, just the security of being allowed to exist as a couple is a huge oh. thing. Yeah. To me, sometimes I, I hear love is real, not in a generically affirmative way. Like, isn't love great? Or like, all love is valid. I think it, he's not saying that. I think it's, he's actually saying that in order for love to be legit, it has to be quote unquote real rather than based on a fantasy or an illusion or mm. like an unreciprocated desire. Because he says love is real, but also that real is love. Meaning not fantasy is love, real is love. I mean, look at what constitutes real love in the song. It's touch. It's the knowledge that we can be 
it's both parties wanting it and feeling it. I mean, it's almost yeah. a laundry list of what he didn't have with Paul. I mean, mm. coincidentally or not. <laughs> right. I mean, that's why it's a sad song, even though it's sort of disguised as like a one-dimensional sure, a, a lo- a love, love song. song. Right. It's interesting that he says, love is wanting to be loved. It's a need that you... It's a need. That's right. It has yeah. nothing to do with giving to the other person it's just the name that we've given for our needs that can never be fulfilled and the sooner we realize that i guess the sooner we'll be happy assholes well and but but why is yoko in 1970 the only person that john has any like faith in because she's the one that wants him you know yeah yeah and that's what he wants. He wants and, to be wanted. You know, he wants mm-hmm. someone to need him. And yes. he found someone who is is needy and desires to be with him 24-7. Yes. Again, to go back to Shivi and the things that he didn't or couldn't have with the Paul relationship is touch. Right. Being held. Yeah. And the ability to, to be together. And the knowledge that it could be a reality. You know, I think that's the point of the of, of love is right. real, you know? That it can be openly acknowledged and explicitly expressed. Right. As opposed to the romantic illusion. That's the thing that he has renounced. He's rejecting his own stupidity and romanticism. Love is worthless unless it is a, a practical reality. Yeah. So this seemingly sweet love song is really about the disillusionment of, and the sort of the death of what he thought love was. But but it fits in with the rest of Plastic Ono Band. Sort of on the surface, it seems like that one song is out of place, like it doesn't belong with the others. Mm-hmm. But when you look at it in those terms, that it is about the like the the death of you know his romanticism, it's you... devastating. Completely. Taking the lyrics to Love is Real as a template, you could pretty easily trade in love for the word God in God. Like the the love that is described in Love is Real could be a concept by which we measure our pain. And it's all, ultimately, it's all 100% self-involved. We just talked about like John's flirtation with sociopathy in 1970 when he's like that's what life is all about is manipulating other people to get what you want so maybe this is that kind of coming back and being like well if that that's what paul is doing that's what everyone does and so we're all just lonely little planets you know yoko will be generously granted human status yeah but that's only because she is the rib from his she is him yeah yeah i am a heathcliff yeah totally people make a very good point when they talk about john's mental health and that he may have had a disorder that his entire worldview lives and dies by how he feels about his relationships with other people okay but i honestly think that john going full tilt into primal scream therapy at that specific moment when he was 
heartbroken did a massive number on his head because the whole idea of God as a concept by which we measure our pain, that's that's Janoff. And, well, and it's dumb. It's just nihilistic bullshit. Janoff's whole fucking thesis is like, you're born alone and you die alone. He he literally was like, people make friendship groups so that they can delude themselves into believing that they are not alone. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the same nihilistic, toxic bullshit that's so popular with other such luminaries as Richard Dawkins. Let me read this to you. This is okay. this is from Jano. I hate this, him so much. I hate him so much too. This is Jano. <laughs> In the absence of the removal of pain, the best that can happen to a suffering adult is to try to fulfill the lacks in his childhood, to find a support group which is understanding, tolerant, with whom one can express one's feelings and problems. A family substitute, if you will. (laughs) The Beatles, if you will. That's my editorializing. Right. It really doesn't matter about the content of the ideation so long as it reassures, bolsters, supports, makes the person feel not alone, helps him think that there is a higher power who will help him, etc. Those beliefs must run counter to the unconscious pain. I'm all alone. I've never had any help. No one cares. There was and is no one to support and guide me. Those are the real feelings resulting from thousands of childhood experiences. That is why so many of the support groups embrace religious tenets. That is the function of belief systems. They manufacture a fulfillment that doesn't exist to bomb the unconscious need. They attempt to normalize. So that fucking toxic, stupid garbage (laughs) comes directly from Arthur Janov. Friendship is bullshit. <laughs> it's all self-interested at it, its it, root. The only person who really cares about you is you. Yes. I don't believe in anything. I just believe in me. And to be clear, like, I'm not here to be a shill for religion or God <laughs> or anything at all. But the idea that every human impulse is at its root self-interested is one of the most gross garbage ideas which and it's espoused mostly by privileged white men by the way of course and it's ugly and degrading and false and creates (laughs) immense suffering which is by the way the opposite of what jenna claims is his goal true and the opposite of everything the beatles stood for true and stand for you're right i am right I feel like it was especially toxic to, to someone like John with his issues. To somebody who is as sensitive and romantic and idealistic as John Lennon. Yeah, this runs absolutely counter to every good impulse inside him. Yes, yes. Like that killed everything good in him for a short period of time. It did. I absolutely agree. And it justified all of his worst fears and impulses. I was like, yep, I was right to be an asshole to everyone because it's natural. Yes, yes. It's absolutely natural. And that's how you get ahead, too. And thank God I'm looking out for me because no one else is because everyone's out for themselves, especially Paul. Like, don't think for one second that he gives a shit. 
Yeah. He's out for himself and always has been. And therefore I'm justified in any action yeah. to tear him down. Yeah. Ugh. And again, it's not factored in that John was being indoctrinated by nihilistic, homophobic, opportunistic, gross, yeah, fame whore who projects his own worst flaws onto the entirety of the human race. I don't think that John comes off badly necessarily. Not at all. I, more than anything else, I feel bad for him. And it does help make sense of his shitty behavior, but also his tormented sort of, you know, back and forth conflicted behavior. Like it does make sense. Yeah. It gives a lot of context and insight into what's going on in there. Next is the Call Before You Come incident from 1976. We're going to give you a couple versions of this story to sort of try to recreate, to the best of our knowledge, what happened. In 1980, when John was returning to public view after a four-year absence, he told this story to Barbara Graustark at Newsweek. Now, wait a minute. I thought that Yoko said that you have seen well, that was about two years, I don't know what, three years ago? He used to turn up with the door with a guitar. So I said, do you mind ringing first? You know, I've just had a hard day with the baby. Yeah, true. What was the last time you turned up with the I don't know, three years ago, four years ago or something. I can't remember. But I said, look, you know, this call us about a hard day with the baby, you know? <laughs> I'm worn out and you're walking in with a damn guitar. Okay, well, first of all, the fact that John is pretending like he doesn't remember the last time he saw Paul is ridiculous. Yeah, I don't know. Three years ago, four years ago or something. I don't remember. Okay. <laughs> well, and I mean, I, I think John was perfectly within his rights to say, you know what? Please call first. Actually, you're right. I, I, I 100% agree. Like the, yeah, whether or not he was slaving over the baby, like. It's, that's a normal thing to ask someone to do. But then to go and blab about it is rude. Yes. We have another version of this story, which paints a much different picture. This is from Dakota Days by John Green, the Lenin's astrologer. So he's recounting a conversation that he had with John. John Lennon is talking to the astrologer about Paul. And he's going on and on and on. And then he says, then he started coming around the Dakota when he was in town, but you know about that. And the astrologer says he was using you, seeing you not producing while he was doing Madison Square Garden helped psych him up. He needed to think that he was that much better than you to get his energy up. <laughs> Which I don't think yeah, so. <laughs> that's, I think, that sounds. Paul uh, notoriously has low energy. And really needs to psych himself up to perform. Uh, I think Paul's proven over time that he doesn't <laughs> need like bump his energy, the blood up. of his enemies to sustain him. Seriously, yeah. it's ridiculous. So John Lennon apparently says the funny part is that I let him get away with it for so long. You know, I used to dread it when he was in town, 
but I never had the sense to go out on the island or just not answer the door. He'd come striding in with a guitar under one arm and Linda under the other, asking me what was new, knowing nothing was new. Then he'd always ask if I'd heard his latest, which I usually hadn't. (laughs) The guitar was so we could sing together, but that was never going to happen. I just tell him I was really busy being a father. He must have seen through that because he's a father many times over. And that certainly doesn't tie him down. It wasn't until I told him that I was real busy, that if he wanted to see me, he'd have to call first that he got the message to leave off. I have your tarot advice to thank for that. God. (laughs) The astrologer says, think nothing of it. And John says, I don't. (laughs) Which is is a weird thing to say. (laughs) You're welcome. And John's like, you better believe I'm welcome. (laughs) What? (laughs) Donata. Yeah, I hate Paul and I hate you too. So John Lennon says, uh, John Lennon says, I don't, but really that was important because it got me off the hook without losing face as Yoko would say. Now (laughs) this book is certainly not a favorite with John and Yoko fans. So feel free to take it with a grain of salt. If you wish Um, it definitely has a sour tone and (laughs) just makes John miserable 24 (sighs) seven. But I think if John's got an astrologer whispering in his ear that, you know, Paul's laughing at him and relishing his depression, Mm. reveling in his non-productivity. Yeah. I think John's insecurities are pretty transparent and would be easy to play into, which they clearly are. This story says less about the situation than it does about john's insecurities it's like textbook right yeah paul doesn't love you he thinks he's better than you he enjoys Mm -hmm. watching you suffer he uses you he's not your real friend drawing strength from your from your weakness yes yeah so that's dark as hell yeah that was fun (laughs) yeah i'm sorry but but it it makes the point that in this quote John literally says he used his baby as an excuse to save face, which is obvious. Yeah. But it's good to have it in print. And he's doing it in 1980 as well. That's the whole purpose of that story saying, hey, I'm desirable. Paul McCartney wishes he could hang out with me, but I can't be bothered because I'm just too cool. It's cooler inside my apartment than it is outside in New York City. So (laughs) fuck you. certainly cooler than madison square garden paul really puts the square into madison square (laughs) (laughs) to be fair to john it's not a wildly insane take that paul (laughs) was arrogant he's incredibly competitive and capable of being cocky and smug and obnoxious and all that Completely, yes. Paul is outrageously competitive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so like, it's certainly not hard to believe that Paul would be pleased with himself after <laughs> another number one single. And it's quite possible that he would be, you know, strutting a little bit. 
yeah totally selling out stadiums like uh, yeah yeah he's gonna he's gonna feel good gonna preen a little bit whatever but i don't think he ever wanted john to feel bad about it or for it to make him insecure in himself and i don't think that paul ever needed to use john's misery as fuel to his own creative fire that i think is pure paranoia on john's part helped along by this tarot asshole and yoko (laughs) presumably (laughs) and okay you know what maybe john is projecting here a little bit too we know that john in his worst moments actively derived pleasure from making other people suffer uh i know that sounds really harsh but that's what the word bully means people are have are pretty comfortable now saying that john could be cruel and a bully and i'm just unpacking those words a little bit here maybe that's why he perceived that in paul i fully believe that paul wants john to be impressed yes but i think that that is not the same thing as wanting john to feel bad about himself in relation to paul you know yeah and i think at this point like paul would be happy to kind of share the limelight with him again well that's true too even in uh john's version to the tarot asshole <laughs> he, he says you know paul would bring his guitar over so that we could play together yeah right and yeah so they wanted to like paul definitely wanted to write together yeah yeah and to your point like paul the arrogant asshole is a definite thing <laughs> that is a thing you know yeah that that creature exists i mean once upon a time it was probably very attractive to john absolutely yeah you know when they were together (laughs) if you have a cocky asshole on your arm that's different you know (laughs) right cocky (laughs) arm candy (laughs) (laughs) right but like if he's your partner and your names are attached to each other and you're you know you're getting the accolades together then it's like his his light is shining on you it's very pleasurable i'm sure not for nothing but like everybody loved them in combination so when they were both full of themselves and full of each other that's when they were most attractive to the world but it's a different story once they're apart then it's john versus paul and it's gonna hit differently (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He's no longer being successful with John. He's being successful at John. Yeah. Right. In spite of John. Right. So maybe tell in Newsweek in 1980, I turned Paul away from the Dakota was John's way of giving himself a confidence boost when all of a sudden he's got to go out and promote himself, which is hard when you've not been, you haven't had an album in five years. And you really have no reason to think that anybody's going to give a shit other than like you were once a Beatle. Only than that you used to work with Paul McCartney. Well, there's that anecdote in Fred Seaman's um, where there's some kids at the beach who don't recognize John. (laughs) But then, (laughs) so he writes, when they finally caught on that John was a rock star who used to work with Paul McCartney and some band before Wings, they went a little bit crazy. The boy got out his windsurfer and leapt into the sea, nearly drowning in his eagerness to impress John, who smiled tolerantly. Yeah, so so this anecdote illustrates what I meant. That not that I own the value. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, he, that he used to work with Paul, of course. 
yeah um but that john at his most insecure and self-doubting that that might be a concern that he'd have not that this was how he felt all of the time or even most of the time or this was the last word on his (laughs) personality um but it's an unfortunate truth that when you have thoughts and feelings even occasionally that are that dark and that negative then they spill over and affect your behavior even during the times when you're in a better place you carry trauma from your own past thoughts and feelings even after you've recovered from them and are in a better place this passage from dakota days is not nice but it's something that we have and then i think it is the flip side to the coin yeah paul told this story to adam buxton just last year and he didn't seem bothered about it of course this is with hindsight so he might have been hurt at the time but has since shaken it off in the in the subsequent 45 years 40 years right um but for whatever it's worth he he said this i mean then i was the kind of person that didn't know that like particularly in places like new york you call ahead uh-huh. oh, because i'm from liverpool i don't know you just show up all right john how are you doing you know but he did say to me you know do us a favor next time you know let us know you're coming if we go back to 1976 for a moment and take a look at what's going on at that time paul is getting majorly mixed signals from john here one minute he's the estranged fiance right and john is so excited to come to new orleans and then the next minute he's telling paul to get lost or he's calling him up and saying i'm so sorry about your dad or well it it begs the question did something big happen between them in the middle you know between estranged fiance slash i'm sorry about your dad and john saying (laughs) go away guitar man that something that we don't know about well that it, there's always that possibility right so it might not be mysterious to paul or it might be and paul's kind of twisting in the breeze a little bit not knowing <laughs> what john is going to show up to his next interview or answer the phone which johnny's going to get day to day one final version we have is peter brown's version According to Peter, and this is in his book, The Love You Make, um, he asked Paul about this incident. And apparently Paul told him that John told him he couldn't drop in over the intercom. Like Paul buzzed up or whatever, the doorman buzzed up. And John said over the phone, you can't just drop in on people in New York like you did in Liverpool. The old times are over. They're over. So Paul didn't even get in the door in this version yeah i mean i think the net effect of it is kind of the same anyway just to be thorough there you go do we believe that this was the last time they saw each other i sincerely doubt it 1980 notwithstanding i'm saying like i don't think it i don't think it went from 76 to 1980 because no me neither there's a story in dakota days about them all having Uh, dinner together and john was really bent out of shape about how paul and linda were so smug about how happy they were so the astrologer did the cards and and assured john that they were that they were privately secretly miserable yep nice nice like don't worry john they'll be getting a divorce soon and he was like yes oh this old chestnut can we talk 
about how John has been publicly wishing divorce on the McCartneys since 1970. Can we talk about the fact that that is not normal? Yeah, and like how how quickly it is brushed off by Jean Jackets as like, well, he's just competitive. <laughs> what? Yeah, <laughs> you know, like nothing to see there. <laughs> Anyways, he does kind of, um, as you said, he he kind of backtracks a little bit in the Playboy interview because yeah. they ask him to confirm that story once it's in Newsweek. And he says, um, well, Paul was upset by that, but I didn't mean it badly. And then um, the follow up question is, that was the last time you saw him? And John says, yeah, but he took it the wrong way. So I think because he says yes people have taken that as factual like they're like oh well he confirmed right here that that was the last time they saw each other right so it must be true so it must be true even though paul is kind of cagey about that he's like what uh maybe and people so often act like every offhand comment made by john lennon is sworn testimony have you (laughs) noticed this yeah even though he admittedly had like the worst memory in the world well and also he's not telling you everything necessarily when he's talking to a reporter like there's even an interview with john and paul in like 1963 or whatever this is on a um a tv show in scotland and the host asks how old were you when you wrote first songs and they say 14 and then she goes, oh, did you guys know each other then? And they both immediately go, yeah. Yeah. That's that's when we met. When we were 14, which obviously they weren't 14. First of all, they can't be 14 because they're a year apart. You know what I mean? But they're just like, Listen who up. cares? No, nobody yeah. fucking cares. They're giving you an overview. You know, they're not sitting down going, well, he said right here that they were 14, but that's not <laughs> correct. Like, no shit, that's not correct. It's close enough. And Paul, Paul starts telling the story of how they met and Ivan Bond and whatever. And John halfway through goes, don't complicate it. Don't tell him about our mutual friend and quarry bank and shit, Paul. Just give just give him the headlines. That's funny. So that's my point. It's like with this SNL story. It's like, it's just a quicker story for him to say, yeah, we saw it on TV and we almost went down. Yeah. Like if the detail is, of it is like, actually it was like the week after, but same difference then yeah. like they're that those stories are not inconsistent one just <laughs> has more detail than the other one do you know what i mean yeah one is a condensed version that has been made into a fun snippet for the paper anyways so that rant over but anyway my point is is that if paul doesn't corroborate every random thing that john says it doesn't mean paul's lying because yeah. john quite often just said shit and sometimes I think Paul just goes along with the stuff John says to keep the peace or to just not get into telling a big story that he doesn't feel like telling. Well, this is why we can't just take any of their statements about the last time we met at face value, because for whatever reason, there is some sort of deliberate <laughs> subterfuge going on about it from John and from Paul. And it's yeah. still going on. In 2020, Paul said in a Reddit chat uh, to promote McCartney 3 that he doesn't remember when it was he last saw John before his sudden violent death. 
um because that's a likely story because because that's something you did you know just you just forget your mind um anyway uh the fan who submitted the question actually brought up james mccartney paul's son his comment about john lennon holding him as a baby and james's memory of being in the dakota and what it looked like and all that uh, and of course james was born in 1977 so this would have happened <laughs> yeah after that <laughs> <laughs> right paul was like "Ooh, hmm, interesting question i don't know you know again to my point that john is full of shit in that barbara grabstark interview she's like wait i thought that yoko said that you just saw paul and he's like well that was i that was two years ago or or three years ago or four years ago i don't know i can't remember what we decided to go with exactly exactly they definitely saw each other they did they They did and i don't know i don't know why paul wouldn't be saying that it may be for some totally innocent reason like it might not mean anything well, i just think it's worth worth noting that <laughs> everyone in the beatles circle like there no one's talking about it yeah it could just be that he paul wants privacy and he's just doesn't sure. really talking about it mm. yeah it definitely comes off as if he and yoko made a deal right yeah <laughs> definitely comes off that way and you know what at this point even if Paul decided he was just going to break his silence or whatever and be like, actually, oh, people, people would say he was lying. Of for course. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. There goes that Paul revising history. So, yeah. Yeah. Even though, you know, he has support from various people. <laughs> yeah. He might he might just be kind of biding his time and being like, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to let that information come from third parties. Well, Jack Douglas has talked about it. Exactly. Because he's like, I do not feel like opening myself up to more criticism for lying about my own life i'm i've had enough of that let somebody else let somebody else do the detective work on that seriously and nobody is willing to do it so maybe he's just like you know what fuck all you guys you don't even deserve the truth and he's right like we don't deserve it he's so right like we've treated him like trash so we don't deserve the truth about john and paul i really don't (laughs) yeah we do not no we don't deserve it but that doesn't mean we're gonna not try to figure (laughs) and make multi-part podcasts about it um anyway for one thing it might be like you know yeah I could tell people that we saw each other but I I can't really explain the nature of those meetings yeah because people are going to go off the wall in every direction I don't really want to deal with that I don't want to deal with reading about how our last meeting was probably John kicking me in the teeth and then on the other hand some people are going to go off in the opposite direction and imagine I don't know dirty seedy underhanded cheating whatever yeah. yeah yeah secret sex scandal <laughs> <laughs> beatles illicit affair <laughs> right 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 how could they do this to yoko and linda <laughs> also paul says that john was the one who broke up the beatles <gasps> shocking revelations wait are you saying that the media wouldn't handle this well i trust oh, them implicitly <laughs> once he puts a date to it there's then his control over the narrative is over 
Yeah. And he has so little control of anything yeah. anymore. And it bothers him. That it, fact bothers it absolutely him. really does. Yeah. And we know for a fact that like he feels like their whole relationship has been distorted. So mm-hmm. yeah. But he he's not gonna give us more information to further pervert and distort, right? Exactly. I wouldn't yeah. if I was him. I'd be like, Fuck yeah, all of you. Yeah. And Yoko's happy for people to think that they were estranged for the past for the last four years of John's life. So she's not gonna say anything. Right. Right. So we have what we have. What to be, what to be. But we're going to leave 1980 alone for now. That <laughs> is another tale for another day. Another fairy tale for another pizza day. <laughs> in the next episode, we're going to return to where we left off back in the mid to late 70s era. The wings over the world era. The Dakota yes. years. The Jimmy Carter years, etc. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and take a deeper look into this series' titular phrase, pizza and fairy tales. So far in this series, we've talked almost entirely about John's point of view. So in episode four, we're going to spend some time on Paul's point of view and what he seems to be communicating to John throughout the 70s. And we're finally going to tackle the concept of pizza and fairy tales. What does this expression tell us about the impasse between John and Paul? We'll delve into what John meant when he said it, what Paul thought when he heard it, and how it beautifully encapsulates the deep but unspoken emotional standoff between Lennon and McCartney that ultimately prevented them from reuniting in the 1970s. It is an intense and sensitive topic and we've done our level best to sort out the truth and to treat it with the thoughtfulness and honesty it deserves we hope that you'll join us when we bring it all together next time in the fourth and theoretically last episode of pizza and fairy tales we hope you've enjoyed this episode of another kind of mine and we hope that you will never be able to see arthur janov's name again without breaking out in a rash some dry heaving everybody's homework for this week is to pull out (laughs) your copy of plastic on a band and listen to love not too many times though what homework have you assigned this week well phoebe i think it's never a bad time to watch paul mccartney and wings in the one hand clapping special Oh, a nice choice. Yeah, if nothing else, if nothing else, treat yourself to this performance of 1985. What will earn our listeners extra credit this week? Infinite extra credit is available for those who leave us a good review. Oh, yes, please. iTunes, please, if you would be so kind. iTunes, on iTunes, specifically. (laughs) Very smooth. Yes, and just as a final message to all listeners, you are all beautiful the way that you are. Unless you are Arthur Janov, in which case you are, you are not beautiful. I think love takes more courage, perhaps, than faith, because we can't avoid having faith. You know, when we are babies, all of us have faith in our mothers, mm-hmm. we'll say. 
and we have some degree of faith in ourselves, right? And we have to have faith in our close friends or, or, or things that we cherish, like the truth or faith in education or faith in America or faith in whatever country we live in, or faith in freedom. So we have faith in different things that we can't avoid, but it, it, it doesn't take any courage to have those kinds of faith. But it takes uh, courage to have love for people who are different from you, people that we consider to be inferior to us or enemies of ours. Of course, Jesus says we should, you know, love our enemies as well as our friends and, and have so-called agape love or self-sacrificial love, love for people that are not lovable, love for people that don't love us back. That's, that takes a lot of courage, I think.